welcome to Reliving My Youth, the show where we look back to pop culture from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. My name is Noel Fogelman, and I am super excited to talk to this week's guest, the very talented singer-songwriter Nick Hayward, the former frontman of the band Hairco 100. Nick just released an album, his first in almost 18 years, called Woodland Echoes. It's getting rave reviews, it's a fantastic album. I talked to Nick about the inspiration for the album and its album cover, the differences of working on your own label as opposed to a major label, and of course we talk a bit about Haircut 100, his time in the band, just how difficult it is to reunite all six original members, and we have some fun talking about the band's old videos, Love Plus One, Fantastic Day, Favorite Shirts, and just how silly they were. Nick is a fantastic guy, he's super sweet, and for those who want to get reacquainted with Nick and the band, Here's Law Plus One.
And helping me relive my youth today is Nick Hayward. Nick, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So, uh, a big fan of your new album, uh, Woodland Echoes. Uh, did you write all these songs like under a tree outside? <laughs> <laughs> well, I can honestly say that that um, the same creative process that makes the trees grow in the first place is made this album. It was definitely, it was definitely kind of um, organic. It was I was working on it, and then I wasn't, and then my studio equipment would get put into a lock-up if I moved, and then I went to another another place, another rental property, and then I went to lock-up and then got my studio equipment out. So most of it was made in a, in a spare room somewhere. Uh, like like the song Beautiful Morning was made in a in a really lovely cottage. Really, really sweet, tiny, like everything in the UK. Uh, but in the middle of the countryside, uh, hence why I stuck the phone on the windowsill and recorded the early morning bird song. Yeah, and it was oak. They made it out of oak, so it was oak floor and oak staircase and little oak kitchen. That was all it, all it was. It was a little oak house. It was like living... I felt like I was an owl. <laughs> just living inside a little hole in a tree. So yeah, tree-inspired definitely and similar kind of process, creative process to... to to wild, to, to wild farming, you know, organic farming. It definitely wasn't processed in any way. I mean, there was no no record company. I was the record company. So I would basically say, you know, get on with it, Nick. Right. Oh, you don't get on with it. Yeah, now... I'll get on with it. Now get on with it. Now stop. <laughs> yeah, so, so there was no pressure from the label, because you were the label. <laughs> No, it was finished when it was finished. I didn't even know when it was finished or why it was finished. Or, I mean, it, when I started it, albums weren't even albums had gone. Vinyl had gone. Everything was gone. Yeah, the album concept had gone. So, by the time it was nearly finished, because I was always working on it as a as an album, I thought it had a beginning, then it had the end of side one, then it had beginning of side two. So I I used the template of album anyway. I was I was making an album. I was making a, a story. Um, I just didn't know what it was and what it was called until the end. And then then I named it like you do a song. Sometimes you write and you don't know what it is that you're writing. And then at the end of it, you go like a poem or something, and you go, oh, well, that's so obviously called antelope. Uh, so off you go. Yeah. Yeah. Now. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Like, I know. Like sometimes you've like wanted to write songs because you have a title of the song. Are there, uh, how often is it that you come up with the title of the song after you actually write the song? Um, lots, actually. M- more often than not. Um, but I have, you know, I, I'm just, whatever way it comes, I mean, I, it, you know, the song I had called Kite, right. didn't, you know, that came such a roundabout way that was not just sitting down with a guitar and writing it. That came through the end of a very frustrating time in a in a basement studio where I was I'd recorded the album from Monday to Sunday, but it was all done. But there was no apparently no singles, so I was sat in this room trying to come up with a single. I'd never done that before ever. I didn't even I used to record, and then singles were chosen. So I, this this was new to me. I thought, and it was very stressful. And everything I did that would 
was uh, rejected. So I thought, what art is process now? I, I, how did this happen? This, didn't, this is not being in um, music. This is a strange one. And so I ended up just saying to, to Ian, who was uh, engineering the session and producing and stuff, and helping me with with the, with the, you know, he was, he was involved too. He was sort of saying, we're both very under pressure. And then we just took the pressure off ourselves. And I said, oh, just give me a beat. Just give me like a metronome, like a heartbeat. I just want to play something I like, for God's sake. And I played, some of my favorite chords was just A minor, C, G, and D over and over. And then I, then I played with a little line over the top that went, da, 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 And I took it home. And which I never do. I never do that stuff. I never approach a song that way. So, and I, I had my diary open when I was making a phone call, phone call to somebody, and I was doing, and I don't do writing this way either. I never write that down. I normally grab a bit of paper or something. Right. Then I mean, oh, it's the phone. Right. So, um, and I had my book open, I did the diary, and I jotted down something that I'd seen on TV about. Um, about families going into prison if they were caught smuggling drugs in Turkey, which was just totally random. There was a, uh, they'd have written down, don't let them shoot your kite. Now, they, they used to, this little kid used to fly, his mum died, and he flew the kite in the prison yard. Um, and that was it. So, a few other things, some line from Reader's Digest and stuff. I took the lyrics in and I sang them over, and it was like a puzzle that fitted, that fell into place. It was the easiest puzzle I've ever done. So, uh, that song that just came in a different way. So now I realise that, and then that ironically ended up being the single. So just being creative and being open to, to creativity can um, can be the can be another approach, another way. So if whether it's the title first, whether it's last and it goes on like a cherry on top of a cake, or whether you start off with cherry first and then say I'm going to put a cake around this. Um, it's just just be open to creativity, you know, mistakes even, you know, they're, they're the best things ever because they can lead to amazing things. If, you, if you're scared of mistakes, you never do anything. Yeah, you're, ab- you're, you're absolutely right about that. Um, besides just the technology you mentioned earlier, has your songwriting process changed at all? period when I was improvising a lot uh, and I think that was when I when probably about 2003 uh, my son set me up with a laptop and a road mic and some nice speakers and I just it's all I knew how to do was press record I didn't I was not technically minded I'd never done engineering that way up. I'm just always just sort of floating around like a duck, you know, around around the around the, around the lake while while it's all going on underneath the lake. And um, so I, I was just um, I just it's right, so I press record. So I I press record one day and just started singing so that I could record something. And uh, and then I stopped it three minutes later. I thought, oh, I'll stop there. Uh, and I was carried on, I thought, okay, so that's recording, so I got that, all right, I got that, I got fast forward, okay, yeah, okay, stop, and and then I listened to it back, and I thought, oh, that's three minutes of a something, I don't even know, well, I wasn't thinking at all while I was doing it, it was just something, 
absolutely a beautiful song as well uh, did you come up with the art for the uh, album sleeve for, for Woodland Echoes um, yeah I am um, uh, it's great having the phone now because I I went to um, I really I we'd moved to Florida Florida to Tampa and there's a load of thrift shops and I was going I guess the thrift shops and I I was buying old postcards and uh, they're only a dollar. Hmm. And I was just buying and collecting them. And I, was, I really liked this one of the lake. Uh, I didn't know where the lake was. And it, it said Lake Louise, I think. I thought, ah, oh, I haven't been there. That looks absolutely wonderful. And when it came to the end of the album, I thought, it just seems like a, you know, an old postcard. It seems to just fit. So I took a picture of it and sent it. And um, I've got a little app on my phone for doing putting type on stuff. So I put put type on it and then then sent it off to, <laughs> to that to be the thing. So it's like really easily done. Everything could either be done in the spare room or other people's spare rooms or some studios. I mean it was it was mixed in Chris Sheldon's studio, but I think even even he has that in the bottom of his garden like a gnome. <laughs> <laughs> so it's definitely homemade. Right. The whole thing, you know, and local, you know community-based, it's, it's from a local thrift shop, sleep. I mean, I could have had my, pic, my picture on it. There was quite a bit of pressure from, uh, once I began to talk to record company people, as in, not record company, record business people, as in promotions, you know, say, we'd really like your sleeve, your photo on the sleeve, and I thought, well, 
that's the great thing about having your own label. You can you can have whatever you want on the sleeve, <laughs> even if it's to your own detriment commercially. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I'm sure most artists would have chose to put the, uh, the their picture on, but just that that shot just it's perfect with the, with the theme of the album. Oh, that's good. That, that's good because I I didn't know I, whether I was um, being self uh, self sabotaging my my career there. Uh, well, when you got somebody from the music world, they go, you think you think, oh, well, these guys know what they're doing. But I fought for that dollar postcard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was worth every penny, right? <laughs> now, uh, yeah, well, hopefully, well, that's what the artist does. I mean, the, the inner artist inside is definitely. I mean, the inner artist shouldn't really be the inner promotions person, but but that's what the other either a real artist or not, you know. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm not a promotions person. Now let's take it back a few years. How did Haircut 100 form? Um, God, it's, it's quite a long story, really. Um, but the nucleus of the band was uh, myself, Graham Jones, and Les Nemes, and we um, we were mates, and we lived together too uh, we were really good uh, friends and uh, we lived above a flower shop in Gloucester Road up in London and uh, I, I just thought that, well, we didn't have a drama at, at that stage but I walked into the NME and um, somehow secured an, an interview <laughs> <laughs> and it was from that interview that everything started to take off really quickly and uh, so from that interview to being on Top of the Pops, it was, it was really quick. But we, we had the name for about a month because we used to have a name all the time, you know, a name a week. Uh, but Haircut was stuck because our, the reaction from our friends was, uh, why? And, <laughs> and that was the same kind of, I really liked that reaction because that was the same reaction I felt when I first heard XDC and Talking Heads and all the music I liked. Like when I first heard Dan that television, what a bad picture! Don't get upset. It's not a major disaster. When David Byrne sang that on Seventy Seven, uh, I just, I just, I just thought, why, why that lyric? Why, why? And that's amazing. That that just is, uh, that's amazing. And when I first saw XDC and they were doing stuff, and you, you just thought, why did they do that? And it's so unexpected, and surprising, and intriguing, and mesmerizing and uh, it was surreal it was a surreal time uh, I, mean, I liked my basic pop too you know like I, I got into the undertones and I squeezed, squeezed singing about things you know kitchen sink dramas and right. you know things that you lived with like through parks and chip shops and caravans and things so it was all just a beautiful period so you know we were forming around that that landscape, and then by 1981, there was a little brick funk wave that just suited us because we were in rehearsal studios, funking, <laughs> funking away, which was, which was, which was my idea of Talking Heads turned into funk. You know, because Les was more into funk, funk like Shalimar and things, and, right. and I was more into David Byrne, and Frank was still into the Clash, so he was just sort of like following, following us anyway, reluctantly, but. But sort of, it worked. We were just, it worked. And then when Blair joined, the best drummer in the world, uh, <laughs> we just suddenly became quite, quite a band, 
you know, because he he just made it go, and then Mark on percussion and then Phil on sax. We suddenly became this uh, mixture of lots of different styles, lots of different influences. But we we, we wrote in the question of the wave on the cultural wave of Brit funk in 1982. Right. Do you, do you remember... Yeah, do you remember where you were when you first heard one of your songs on the radio? Uh, you know, I, I really, I remember hearing Love Plus One on, in a cab. I, no, it wasn't a cab, it was a kind of, it wasn't even, it wasn't a lim, limousine, it, it was a very, but it was a very posh car, quite flash, that picked us up to go to New York. And uh, it was the first time we'd be, all been there. And uh, so we, Les was uh, particularly happy because, you know, Kojak and uh, Hill Street Blues and everything, Taxi and everything he'd been brought up on was suddenly coming alive in front of his eyes. Right. Like a thrill, squealing like a, like a piggy. <laughs> uh, and uh, Love Plus One came on the radio and it just, we, we were astounded because it sounded better than it did in England. And we couldn't work it out. We just kept trying to switch the radio on ever since to hear that because it just sounded bigger and I don't know, we just thought, wow, everything's bigger here. Everything's bigger and better. It's, ama- it's amazing. It's, um, I don't know what compressors they were using, but it just sounded enormous. Right. And because uh, up until then, I, I, thought the, I thought the record was like a, a piddly thing. You know, it was a bit, bit twee and a bit... I thought it needed some, um, some soil underneath it, you know, to make it grow big and strong, or a, a grow bag or something like that. You know, some... Manure. <laughs> but suddenly we landed in a, landed in America, and it just sounded so big and strong and powerful. But so we're all like chuffed, and we thought when we played live that you know that day we thought we've got to give it the same kind of feel that it's got. We've got to give it the American feel. So we've actually learned to play really well on in to America because you have to raise your game because. There's some amazing musicians there, and even though everybody was anti-musician at the time, and sort of poking fingers at synthesizers and things, and looking, you know, looking down a lot, um, you know, we still felt like we'd really got to up our ante, so it was an inspiration. Still an inspiration. Every time you, you go over to America, it's just, you know, you you, you kind of wear an imaginary Stetson. <laughs> <laughs> My testicles grow as soon as I land. Yeah. Turn into a watermelon. Right. <laughs> yeah, I was uh, I was <laughs> I was seven years old when I first uh, heard you guys uh, Love Plus One, and I just remember like even because my mom had it on the radio, it was such a happy song, and I just it resonated in me then, and it, you know still does now after all these years. Yeah, it's it captured happiness, isn't it? I mean, it is it is really. It's really optimistic. Yeah. Yeah, now, um, did you enjoy making, like, the videos with the band? Because some of them are, are, are pretty funny. <laughs> well, we had no idea why they were like that. I mean, no idea, I still don't know why, they, who came up with the idea of why it was filmed in a jungle. Right. No idea. What, what on earth has that got to do with the song? Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, that, that was the thing. We were so kind of everything was happening at such fast pace that there was no time to go to and um, our videos. 
you know, now now you've got all the time in the world to do your video on, you know, you, you've got apps that you can do videos on, you right. can film it on your phone and do it now. But, you know, this was, this was part of the, the old school music business was a thrilling thing. It was like white water rafting. It really was. It was, everything happened really quickly and, uh, and it, it changed really quickly, you know, when videos, it just became pretty normal that everybody did a video and all the videos had to be strange. And, and that was really good. So just doing strange stuff, it was, it was odd. It was, it was a, a very creative time. I mean, nothing conservative about those times. It, it was really still in, in, in the kind of, you know, what can we do that's different? You never, you didn't think about, nobody ever thought about conforming then, still, even in record companies and things. It, you were never, you, were, you weren't encouraged to be like everybody else. And then gradually you felt like record companies became more, more kind of encouraging for people to be like everybody else. But I remember around about 81, 82, the, you know, there was still, you, you had the enemy, you had lots of, you had, you had an air of creativity that was going on in uniqueness. You know, that it was it was in there. People were signed because they were odd. Not, not because they were like anyone else. Right. So it was good. Good time. In, in hindsight, I mean at the time you don't so much appreciate it, you know, you just you just think, Oh you know, it's it's, it's not such a creative environment but in hindsight it, was a very creative environment, you know. Sometimes it's lots of other people that lift you. I mean, whoever came up with the idea for the video, I don't, I don't know who it was. Yeah, yeah, because <laughs> the uh, the Fantastic Day, <laughs> the Fantastic Day video it looks like you're on uh, a planet from the old Star Trek TV show. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. It's, it's pretty funny. <laughs> and then uh, the bowling alley in favorite yeah. shirts. Yeah, I mean, it's the thing, isn't it? It's like, you know, these were inter people's interpretations of what the song was. was. <laughs> um, and some, sometimes it was, it's good to not involve, involve the people that were coming up with stuff. I mean, you just, we just used to turn up and uh, the only thing we did, you know, we were in charge of, was what to wear. So uh, there was probably a justification going on there because, you know, you're dressed like a, somebody that's about to go out onto the polo field and you're then in a jungle in on the Serengeti or something or <laughs> maybe even a tropical jungle so that wasn't planned or written into a script that's just the way things turned out so lots of happy accidents right now yeah now after you after you left the band did you talk to anybody from the band before you guys kind of got together on that VH1 special no, that was, uh, and it's, it's an amazing program because that's the only time that we've been all six of us together and it takes a, a program like that right. to get us all together because they arranged the whole thing and none of us knew. And so that's the way to get it together, surprise. I, mean, I can't get anybody together. I haven't been able to get the six of us together at all. I've managed to four, but that's because people have time to think and then they have time to sort of come up with a reason why not and... And now time to think about the finances, which is always, you know, sticking, it's a tongue, you know, it's a 
it's a stumbling block with us because there's six of us and some you know we don't all live in the same town or country even uh, so so you know this is all paid for when you by VH1 so great everything's paid for nobody had time to say no and it was that that carrot of, of dangling with some of them some of the guys where here's a trip all paid for only going to go on the telly <laughs> so I think everybody just the, 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 the yeah you know um, and I, cause I I know deep down I think we all know that we'd all we'd all love to do it um, we just it's just it's just that when we try to arrange it all it just doesn't doesn't happen so VH1 was brilliant for that I, you know it it would take another VH1 to probably do it. Right, you know, he has, a, he has a fantastic program. Uh, uh, lastly, uh, you've done, you know, these 80s festivals, and you perform, you know, your songs, the band songs. you have any uh, plans coming to the East Coast of, the, of America soon? Um, yeah, I, I think there was talk of, like, doing a, an East Coast tour where I just go out with somebody else, because, you know, just, just because uh, that would be financially possible um and then and then you know one thing leads to another i suppose so touring might be might might happen um it all depends what the record does really um and you know i, I don't i don't expect it to to do anything amazing and then you know happen in a sort of similar way to what other records have happened you know i, I just do it and see what see what happens but but i don't think they're going to do another one so if I do more of these things, then there's more even more reason to go and play, and you know maybe I'll be able to afford a band to go round, and I'll be touring and be doing that again. But you know, after a very long gap, you know you don't expect to go steaming in anywhere. Really, <laughs> um, just see, see, just see what happens. You know, it's. I mean, every time I'm sitting in that spare room, just thinking. Bohemian Rhapsody wasn't made in the spare room. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, you just thought, you know what, Nick? The sort of artist just said, well, this is all you got, mate. You know, just get on with it. One thing leads to another. One thing leads to another. You know, do this and you never know. Brian May might even hear it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. Well, <laughs> it'll it'll definitely be a word of mouth record, and I I will I'll I'll spread the word as much as I can because it's a fantastic uh, record. It's Woodland Echoes. Yeah, uh, great. Yeah, Nick, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it, and best of luck. Oh, thank you, Noel. It was lovely to speak to you. And a special thanks to Nick Hayward for joining us today. Be sure to pick up Woodland Echoes. Like I said before, it's getting rave reviews, and it's a fantastic album. You can follow Nick on Twitter, at Nick Hayward. You can also go to his website, nickhayward.com. You can follow me on Twitter if you like. It's at the first Noel 19 you can like the page We're Living My Youth on Facebook. On iTunes, you can rate and review this show and past episodes. We've had some amazing guests. Uh, special thanks to everyone listening. I can't do it without you guys. And be on the lookout for the next episode of We're Living My Youth real soon.